Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who by the mouth of our father David, thy servant, didst say by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves in array, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to thy servants to speak thy word with all boldness, while thou stretchest out thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. This prayer is really relevant today for five reasons. It's relevant because of the answer that came. It's relevant because of the kind of people who were praying. It's relevant because of the occasion or the situation in which it was prayed. It's relevant because of the God to whom it was prayed. And it's relevant because of specifically what they asked for. And that's the outline of my message. Those five steps, I want to take you with me quickly through five reasons why this text is very relevant for us in Minneapolis today in 1991. Number one, the text is relevant because of the answer that came. Let's read verse 31 again. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, what I want you to notice here is the parallels between what happens here and Pentecost. Chapter 2, verses 1 following, the event of Pentecost, and here. This is very important for seeing the relevance of this event. Here, they had been praying when the Holy Spirit moved in this way. At Pentecost, they had been praying when the Holy Spirit moved. Second, here it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Exact same word. Third, here there's a shaking of the building to show the power of God. There a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind to show God's power. Here they speak the word of God with boldness. There their mouths are loosed and they speak in other tongues the great things of God. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Now my conclusion from these parallels is that the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and this is another one. Like it. God gives in both cases a physical demonstration of his presence and power. He gives in both cases fullness of the Holy Spirit. He gives in both cases a courageous speaking forth of the word and work of God. Whatever else Pentecost is, it is not unique as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit To bless the church with extraordinary power and signs and wonders. It is not 
unique. It is repeated both here throughout the book of Acts and periodically throughout church history. This prayer is relevant, therefore, because in America today, we and the rest of the evangelical church, mainline Protestantism and the Roman Catholic Church and every other brand of Christian need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit again. We need it again. And this is true now in the best of churches. Now, I want to show you that from the text. Who is praying for this? Who is asking for it? On whom did it come? Disobedient people? Weak people? Godless people? Fleshly people? No. These are people praying here who've just come through an awesome display of obedience. Peter and John have just been threatened with death and they've said, whatever you think, you can think. We must obey God, not men. And they walked out into this prayer meeting and asked to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is not the case that the only churches that need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are weak churches, fruitless churches, fleshly churches, disobedient churches. Every church today needs this because of the extraordinary obstacles that we face today. And I'll get to that in a moment. So this is a relevant prayer because of the answer that came. It's an answer that we need. We need extraordinary enabling by the Holy Spirit. So I hope that as you hear my heartbeat on this matter and hear me knocking on my friend's door until he gets up year in and year out, you won't conclude that Bethlehem is a bad church, a fruitless church, a powerless church. It's not. Don't conclude from my incessant crying to God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he's not here. Don't conclude that he's not at work, that people aren't being saved, that lives aren't being changed, that worship isn't being offered to the Lord. Just conclude that I put us in the category of these people right here. And I know that if Jerusalem is to be filled with the teaching of Almighty God, or let's say Minneapolis, it won't happen unless something extraordinary come down on the best of churches in Minneapolis today. Number two. This prayer is relevant because of who is praying. Verse 23, when Peter and John, when they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends. Now, that's the RSV. We'll come back to that. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, so this is the friends to whom they come, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and then they pray. Now, who are these people? Well, the only clue we have is this little phrase, their friends, which literally is simply in the Greek, their own. It's used one other time in Acts, namely Acts 24, 23, where Felix commanded, when he put Paul in jail in Caesarea, that he not be prevented from having his own minister to him. Like his nephew, for example. His friends, his family, his sister. We know he had a sister. 
because his nephew was there in Jerusalem. It's used, for example, in John 1. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. His neighbors, his associates, his kin. It does not mean apostles only. That's very important. Peter and Don did not find the apostles. They found their own, evidently, maybe a house church of those with whom they ordinarily fellowshiped. In this 3,000-person church, they had to divide them up, evidently, because they wouldn't fit anywhere. And they went to a group of them, and they prayed then. And so my conclusion is, is that their own are their associates. It's people like you and me, and that's why it's relevant. Do you understand? This is not an apostolic prayer merely. You don't have to be an apostle to pray this way, in other words. To pray, grant us boldness, stretch forth your hand to heal, do signs and wonders. You don't have to be an apostle to ask the Lord to do that. All you need to be is a Christian. Because that's what we have praying here. They went to their own and their own lifted their voices and prayed. Now, we learned already last spring that it's not just apostles who pray and act this way. Stephen was not an apostle. He was a deacon and an evangelist. And the Bible says in chapter 6, verse 8, that he, Acts 6, 8, that he did many mighty works. Philip was not an apostle. And the Bible makes it plain in Acts 8, 6, that he did mighty works. And therefore, you don't have to be an apostle to pray this way or experience this kind of blessing. You simply have to pray as a believer. That's the second reason why this is relevant. It is not something that is limited to apostolic criteria. It is blessing coming upon Christians praying. Third, the prayer is relevant because of the occasion on which it was prayed. Peter and John had just been released from custody, having spent the night in jail and then been interrogated and boldly speaking for the Lord in the morning. They come and they tell the believers what the chief priests had said to them. It says that in verse 23. They told them what the chief priests said. Now, if you want a clue as to what they told them, you drop down to verse 29. And in verse 29, when they start praying, their request, it says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's what they had heard Peter and John tell them. So all you need to do is now is go back up to verse 18 or verse 21, and you'll see the threats that the chief priests and the elders and the leaders had given to Peter and John, namely, don't you dare speak in the name of Jesus again. Or there'll be big trouble. And in a matter of weeks, James' head was cut off. Chapter 12. Peter was thrown in jail. And Herod was ready to cut his head off. Had not the angel delivered him. You're talking big time threats here. That's the situation. And that's why it's relevant. Why did they cry out for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? You know why? Because they knew their own hearts, just like I know mine. I know that if somebody in this city were to tell me, you keep your mouth shut about Jesus or I'll shoot you dead coming across the bridge next Sunday morning, that I would look at my children and I would look at my wife and I would look at that threat and I would be very tempted to close up shop and go to Arizona. They were too. They're normal. They don't want to not see their children anymore. They don't want to be thrown into a dungeon and killed. They know there's a temptation to 
bail out as soon as the going gets rough. And therefore they cry out, oh, God, grant us to speak with boldness. Isn't that great? They know it might cost them their life. They know they can't do it in their own strength. They know the Holy Spirit has to come down and do something awesome in their lives if we're going to walk into the face of that muzzle. And therefore, it's very relevant. All around the world today, Christians are persecuted. David Barrett, in his estimates, say 300,000 people will die this year for Jesus. 300,000 people, because they are Christians, will die in the world today. Now, in America, increasingly, there's persecution of Christians. Increasingly, the relativists and secularists who are in places of power in this land are making it harder and harder and harder for Christians to be Christians. Our freedoms are narrowing because our message is increasingly threatening. Namely, there's only one way to God and only one set of commandments for everybody. Take it or leave it. That's the message of the Christian church. It's increasingly threatening. And therefore, our freedoms are diminishing and they will probably increase to diminish, increasingly diminish, unless the Holy Spirit does an awesome and stunning work of revival. But short of persecution, we face obstacles that are immense, just like they did. In America today, the anonymity of neighborhoods makes local evangelism extremely difficult. The automobile and our mobilization in this country has simply transformed community. It no longer functions in terms of geography. It functions almost entirely in terms of occupation, recreation, church. You don't know your neighbors. People downtown don't know who they live beside. Evangelization becomes extremely difficult. Major obstacle. Another obstacle that we face is the obstacle of the entertainment industry. Not just because there is entertainment, but because we are barraged with entertainment. We are saturated. There was once upon a day when people in America... 200 years ago, would plan their entertainment and have a, a wonderful day of entertainment once a month or once a week or something. And today, entertainment is round the clock, 24 hours, saturating the mind, saying, don't think of death, don't think of God, laugh, be funny, be trivial, play, 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 entertain, entertain. It is a barrage against our minds and against the holy things of God. How in the world do you break into that? Third, we live in a thoroughly God-ignoring culture. Just God-ignoring. You don't even have to say God-less because that has connotations of anti-God. All you need to say is God-ignoring. He's just ignored everywhere. He's not worth 2% of anybody's time. 60% of the people in the Twin Cities never darken the door of a church, never give one dime of their attention to the living God who made them and will judge them. It is an awesome situation we face. Another example is medical technology. Medical technology is so advanced and so available, Americans don't give one thought to God when they get sick. Hospitals are there. Antibiotics are there, pills are there, doctors there, insurance is there, whereas everywhere else in the world just about, if you get sick, it's an eternal issue. It's an issue of God. In America, it's an issue of technology. Another retreat away from God. 
And then you put alongside those obstacles the weakness of the church, by and large, to speak with boldness and persuasiveness. And I just ask you, do we not need something extraordinary? Pose the question like this. If the early church, in the book of Acts, who had eyewitnesses, many of whom had seen the Lord, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians Many of them were still alive. That's 20 years later. You can imagine how many had seen the Lord right here. They'd seen the Lord. They had the apostles all around them preaching with mighty preaching and witnessing to things they'd seen and heard. If they needed to pray like this for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit again a few weeks after Pentecost, how much more Americans, 2,000 years separated from the living word spoken And never having seen the Lord face to face, how much more we should pray like they prayed. Fourth, this prayer is relevant because of whom it was prayed to. This is a beautiful thing here in this prayer, an awesome thing. I hope you learn to pray like this at times, not always, but at times. Five verses out of the seven that are the prayer, tell God who he is. Five out of seven, five-sevenths of their prayer is telling God who he is. Now, God does not need to be told who he is. But we need to tell God who he is when we're about to ask for something awesome. When you're about to ask God to give you the courage to face the sword, you better tell God who he is and feel it in your heart. If you try to get that prayer answered and walk into that situation without knowing who God is, it won't work. The Holy Spirit doesn't come down upon people who don't know God. So let's look at who God is as they pray. They only say two things about God. I suppose we could break it up into more. But really, there are two basic things they say. Number one, verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, including these chief priest leaders and these rascals who think they're going to do us in. You made them. They are pots in your potter hand. You can dash them to pieces anytime you want. You are our God, the maker of everything in the earth and the sea and in the heavens. So they know God as creator. They lift him up as creator. Secondly. They say, you, I'm going to to paraphrase it and then show you where I get the paraphrase. You, God, control everything, even the wickedest deeds of wicked men, and turn them for your saving purposes. That's what the next four verses mean. Here's how they make that point. They quote Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26. The nations rage. Why do they rage? Why do the peoples imagine a vain, empty thing? And then they show the fulfillment of that prophecy by the way in their situation God has emptied the imagination of the nations and put to naught the rage of the peoples. Let's read it in verse 26 and 27 and 28. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people. Stop. In other words, yes, yes, they are raging. Yes, they do imagine things. 
Yes, they were against your anointed. Yes, they are raging against you. But now we have seen what you did. Listen to this. They were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy plan had predestined to take place. You talk about the emasculation of people's rage. You talk about the stripping and vanity of people's plans against God. Here are wicked men all gathered together to conspire against the Lord's anointed. Quick, let's do him in. Let's get rid of him. Let's put him on the cross. Aha! Aha! And Almighty God laughs and turns every sin to the salvation of his people, the vindication of his name, and the destruction of Satan at the cross. You stand in awe of a God like that. What a God! What a God who empties the rage of the peoples and pours into their very imaginations His purposes to save the world. Now, here's why this is relevant. There are people today who say, oh, if we could just be filled with the Holy Spirit, doctrine wouldn't matter. Theology doesn't really matter. What matters is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's not what I see in this prayer. Here are the early Christians with a doctrine of creation that is very profound. A doctrine of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures because they said God spoke by the mouth of David through the Holy Spirit when he wrote Psalm 2. They have a doctrine of the sovereignty of God which stuns every Calvinist into silence by saying that he controls the wicked deeds of men and puts them to his purposes. And they have a doctrine of prophecy and its glorious fulfillment. These people are not praying out of empty heads. These people have been to school. They have been with Jesus. They know God. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He does not come down to indwell a heart when the head is empty about God. He will not long bless a church with bad theology. I say it carefully. He will bless a church with bad theology. He will. I don't doubt that we have some theology that could be cleaned up. God does honor as J.I. Packer said, the needle of truth in the haystack of error in many churches. And if he didn't, there'd be no hope for many. But listen, having said that God in his mercy will come down on an imperfect church doctrinally, I will not go further and say he will abide there long. Because when he comes, and he has come on churches of different doctrinal persuasion. Let's, let's admit that. Let's be glad that he's merciful toward us in our incomplete and inaccurate thinking. He has blessed Wesleyans. He has blessed Reformed. God has done revival in both of those churches. Now, what are we to learn from that? That he doesn't care about truth? He doesn't care if people know him accurately? Or that all doctrine is equally valid? No. You know what that says is? God comes in mercy to draw us to himself wherever we are. To draw us on. He doesn't fall upon the church to say everything you're doing is perfectly right. And that's why I came down. That's not why he came. He came so that we would take heart to press on in our understanding and in our obedience and in our witness. And so I say, doctrine is not unimportant. 
You must know God as creator. You must know God as coming out of the inspired scriptures. You must know God's sovereignty. You must know prophecy. These are important things. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And finally, the prayer is relevant because of what was asked for. Verse 29, the first request is this. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. What does that mean? Tell God where to look. Tell God what to look at. You do that in your prayers. Look at this, look at that. What's, what's the point here? Here's the point, I think. You know what the threats were back in verse 20, 18? The threat was, don't you speak the name of Jesus in this city again, ever. Now, these Christians know what lies heavily on the Father's heart. He loves His Son. He did not send the Son to the cross to be ignored. He sent Him there to be adored, to be acclaimed, to be magnified. And anybody that comes along and says, you keep your mouth shut about Jesus Christ, Christians can go to the Father and say, look at that. You see that? Do you see what that means about your heart for your Son? Kick in. They know what the Father's heart is. He loves His Son. He wants to glorify His Son in the world. That's what they mean when they say, look at their threats. Do you see what they're about to do? Shut our mouths so that Jesus' name is never heard here again. Come on! And then they ask for three things. Father, in the face of this sword, grant us to speak with boldness no matter whether we see our children again or not. Number two, you kick in and stretch forth your hand and heal. And would you do mighty works in the name of your son, Jesus? Let's read that so you see it right out of the text. Verse 29 in the middle. Grant to thy servants to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. Now, this is relevant for us because there are people who say we shouldn't ask for this. Even people who believe that signs and wonders and healing is meant for today will say, oh, but don't ask for them. Now, I commend to you verse 29 and 30 for your consideration as the opposite of that opinion. The Christian said, Oh God, in a day like this, with this much hardness in the world, grant two things. I'm going to divide them up into two. Grant on the one hand that your word go forth with power because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Not signs and wonders. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But... Here we will not be unbiblical in either or. Lord, stretch forth your hand, as it says in Acts 14.3, to bear divine witness to the word of your grace preached. And I'm going to pray that way. And I want you to pray that way. Because why? Why? 
because we're after some kind of spine-tingling experience of healing, because we're after some kind of shivering heat running through our bodies so that signs and wonders can be enjoyed in the house, it's because of the name. What's your plan for making the name known in Minneapolis? What's your plan for filling Minneapolis with the teaching of Jesus Christ so that the foundations of people's lives are shaken? Do you have a plan? The plan that they had was come down, Holy Spirit, and make Jesus known. Out of love to this city, let's pray this way. As usual, we will have people standing on either side of the front here really eager to pray with any of you about anything in your life. It may be that God has touched you with a need for some kind of rededication this morning. Or maybe you just want help with a ailment that you brought into this room and having heard that Christians pray for healing. You might want to ask someone to just ask God to help you with it. Take it away. Or whatever the need you have, they would just love to take one, two, three minutes between services, stand there and and pray with you while the rest of us move out. Father, come and apply this prayer and this word to your church and fill us with such a longing for your outpouring that we give you no rest until you make Zion a glory in the earth. In Jesus' name, we all pray. And the people said, Amen.